Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Reed Goosens, who has an amazing success story moving from Australia to the United States and building a large multifamily portfolio. We'll definitely want to listen in to learn more about how he accomplished this. So Reed, welcome to the show. G'day Marcus. Thanks for having me on, mate. Yeah, no problem. I'm really excited to let you share your story today. So I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of a brief intro before you jump into it here. But a little bit about Reed. He's a real estate entrepreneur with eight years experience in structural engineering, project management, design and real estate acquisitions. He combines his technical engineering background with his passion for real estate development and investing. He has $250 million worth of real estate under management and his experience includes project engineering manager of various multi-story high-rise construction projects, raising private capital to fund projects and new developments, and implementing different investing strategies to increase the value of real estate assets. So yeah, you've got a lot, of, a lot of things on the go, a lot of experience in the real estate space, and have really built up a sizable portfolio in your short time of investing coming over from Australia. So it's, yeah, can you kind of just jump right into that and kind of say <laughs> what, what happened here? Like your story, you came over from yeah. Australia, can you share how that happened and, and sure yeah. yes so it, it really goes all the way back to 2000 and um so to, uh, you, you just mentioned i'm a structural engineer by trade went to university university of queensland uh 2007 uh in 2008 went straight to london to work on the 2012 olympic games i got a job over there uh working to develop the infrastructure uh moved over there for a bit, a bit over a year and then in 2009 moved to the south of france my, my visa in london ran out and i moved to the south of france where i gallivanted on the super yachts for a little bit of time. If you've ever seen the, the, the show Below Deck, it's exactly the same thing. And that during that time is where I met um, my then girlfriend, now wife, Erica, who happened to be an American girl. Um, so end of 2009, backpack through the States, fall in love with this girl. In early 2010, I'm back in Australia going, geez, I'm, I'm back sitting in a cubicle, I'm an engineering job and just had an incredible two years of, of, of being abroad and, and sort of saying to myself, what the hell am I? I, 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 I can't believe I'm going to be sitting in this cubicle for the next 60 years of my life. Like, that's not how you live your life. Like, how do I get someone to pay me to live my life and, and do more? And I really felt like it's like a star athlete sitting on the sidelines just watching my, my, my life go by. And so for that was the impetus to, to, to understand what, what entrepreneurship is. And I didn't even know what that was. I just knew that I needed to do more with my life. And that's when I picked that book, Rich Dad Poor Dad. Uh, and that's when I started educating myself on real estate because I, I started to realize that, hey, I'm in a job that, Okay, maybe I'm sitting in a cubicle, but I'm also being surrounded by guys who, who are real estate professionals, developers. You know, I, I worked on infrastructure projects. I worked on retail, um, and and sort of the blinkers came off a little bit. And I was like, I want to be these guys in the future, but I knew I had to continue to learn. So I started to self educate in Australia. Uh, at that point in time, at the sort of end of 2010, 2011, Erica had, had finished her studies in Aussie, and and I was like, look, I really want to live abroad again. Um, and, but I got this real estate bug, but I was like, I really want to live abroad. Screw it. Let's, let's move to New York city because I just really want to move, move to New York city. No, no other reason why. Um, cause I just want to live in a big apple for a period of time. And so early 2012 quit my world paying engineering job in Australia, um, and hit the ground with a tourist visa and try to find a job as quickly as possible and found a structural engineering job. And then within like two weeks of being fresh off the boat, I was at, you know, these things called REARS, which is a real estate investment association club, a sort of a meetup event in, 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 in London, as in London, in New York, and just completely blown away by, you know, the fast talking Americans and, and really having to change the way I think about real estate investing and, and, and quickly realized that the barriers to entry in sort of secondary and tertiary markets in the US were a lot lower than 
than what I'd experienced coming from Australia, which is probably very similar to Canada, you know, very high barriers to entry. Um, you know, I was seeing triplexes and duplexes for 40 or $50,000. And I was like, you would never find that in Australia. So all these incredible opportunities that I was like, I can make cash flow. I can, I can do what rich dad, poor dad says. Um, and so then I just started investing. I had saved up a bit of money at this point. I'd probably been two and a half years of self-education. I knew I needed to take the plunge. And within the first six months of moving to the US, I'd, I'd purchased my first property all cash for like 38,000 bucks in, in Syracuse, New York, just south of the Canadian border there. So that's the sort of coming to America story. And then obviously the rest evolves from there, but I'll stop there. And I'm sure there's some questions just to, just getting there. Yeah. So you came over to the US and I think you just went straight into going into an engineering job as well. That's yep. But you kind of realized, hey, I wanted to get more into the multifamily space, into real estate and really make this a focus. Remember, you, I've heard you talk a little bit about how you made that transition where you're kind of looking at the developers and the other entrepreneurs and, and guys that are doing this in a bigger scale and you were wanting to kind of take your side hustle into something that's like more of a focus for you. So talk about that. Like, how did you make that transition from, I think you just mentioned there, starting small, right? Getting into yep. a, a smaller single family and, and smaller types of properties. And then you kind of realize, hey, I want to get into bigger properties. How did you kind of maneuver your way into that space and realize that, hey, this is realistic for me to start taking down bigger properties as well? Yeah, well, it's all about a mindset thing, right? Like the, the, the whole coming to America was a, a, a massive push outside of my, my comfort zone, right? And, and, and leaving my family and, and a secure job. So that leap of faith was already sort of accomplished. And I'd got the job in New York City. And the next thing was, okay, let's start buying houses. If you know, and, and I started buying these little houses, you know, four hours on a, on, a, on a Greyhound bus outside of New York City. And then from there, I just kept pushing my little boundaries. And, and actually through a, a friend of mine, a good Canadian friend of mine, probably who should start listening to the show of yours. Uh, he, he was based in British Columbia, but was coming through New York at the time at the end of 2013. And at this time, I'd sort of amassed a couple of little properties in Syracuse. I was looking to do a flip in, in Philly, was still working full time as an engineer. And, you know, I'm boasting to him about, hey, you know, I've got, all, I've got seven little units. I'm crushing it. You know, I'm making probably, I don't know, a thousand bucks a month in, in clear cash flow. And, and, you know, he's patting me on the back and, you know, man, that's, that's well done. And, and he goes to me, oh, I just closed on a 70 unit deal. And I said, what, 70, like seven zero? And he's like, yeah, 70. I said, how the hell did you do that? And he then goes on to tell me about, you know, a mentor and, and other people's money and, and seller carryback financing and all this type of stuff that I'd known about. But I was already only using my own capital. And, but I was implementing the same business strategy of all my smaller stuff, you know, the triplexes and duplexes going in, you know, spending five, $10,000 a unit, increasing the rent a hundred bucks a month, but he was doing it on scale. And, and, and the mentor piece was really resonated with me. So I knew at that time that in the back of my head, I was sort of putting off the mentorship and, and, and just the whole reason of starting with those small pro properties was it was my own money and I could get started and I was willing to risk it. Right. And I didn't want to go off and pay a guru to continue learning. I needed to just jump in the deep end and start doing deals. But I knew at that stage I was coming to the end of my tether in terms of lending abilities, in terms of knowing that I was still working full time, wasn't really, you know, didn't see this skyrocketing to financial freedom anytime soon. And so I was like, that's, that's it. I've got to get into syndications. And, and that's where I, I actively went out and I then I sold one of the first properties after about owning it for 18 months um, to, to fund sort of the growth of the business. And, and I went and invested in myself and got found a mentor. Um, and through that mentor, I was then started building 
um, my podcast, my following and, and, and trying to build a, a database of investors. Um, and, and then, then I made the transition to LA and New, uh, from, from New York. And, and at that time, I, I sort of said to myself, I said, if, I, if I'm going to be in the sort of corporate world for the next couple of years, because remember, I was also, I'm, was also here in the United States on a visa. My visa had to be tied to an employer. So I knew that I had a value in stru- being a structural engineer. And I said to myself, well, if I've got to be, if I want this side hustle to eventually become my full-time hustle, why don't I go get a corporate gig with a developer, well-paid, and I can t- continue to learn the business. And, and being a structural engineer, I have that sort of construction management, detailed orientated type of value that a, that a developer would find obviously valuable. And, and thus in 2014, early 2015, I made a transition out of structural engineering over to the ownership side and um, then spent the next three and a half, four years developing multifamily here in Los Angeles, whilst also building my business on the side and the podcast and, and doing my side hustle until I got to a point in, in, in late 2017, after I got married, where I got my green card, where I could eventually then leave my the corporate world and, and, and go out and, you know, really grow Wildhorn Capital, which is what we've, we've, me and my business partner have started today. So a lot of information in there, but it's also the sort of the quick soup to nuts um, type of explanation of what's happened in the growth over the last, probably between 2014 to, to now. Yeah. And like you said, growth, I mean, we look at your portfolio now and from talking about those initial deals you're working on and you were kind of getting excited about earlier on doing seven homes and you're like, look at my portfolio. And your friend kind of looks at you like, Hey, you can probably do bigger if you just kind of switch your mindset and, and go about it in a different way, right. looking at syndications and, and using other people's money and different things like that. But, and then now we fast forward to now and we kind of see, Oh, you're controlling a portfolio of $250 million worth of assets. And it's almost like, wow, how did that happen? Right. But it all kind of, you look at today and you're like, Oh wow, was that easy? Was it hard? Like, there's probably a lot of hoops you had to jump through and challenges that you have faced, especially being somebody that came over from Australia, going into the US where you have no contacts, you don't really have like a network or bringing over this huge amount of capital that you can have and just start placing into deals. But could you talk about some of the challenges that you faced along the way coming over and kind of starting from scratch in a new country? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so... You know, two things I said in that last little segment was, you know, understanding the value that I could bring and continuing to learn. So anyone who's sitting listening to this show and 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 wanting to continue to learn and be surrounded by real estate twenty four seven, maybe you have a skill set that you could use and make that transition into working with a developer or working for a fund or working in a real estate shop um, or becoming a broker. Something that can, you know, you can continue to learn but continue to get paid at the same time whilst you're doing a side hustle. I think that's really important for any growth of anyone. Um, but in terms of the challenges, yeah, there was, you know, I don't want to swear, but there was a buttload of challenges and, you know, on stress on personally, um, during that time, my mother passed away in Australia and, you know, I was here chasing this dream and, and, and trying to do this thing and, and also questioning what was I doing? Am I doing the right thing? And so all these things happen, you know, trying to live a life, trying to try to start a side hustle, trying to have a, you know, wife and a girlfriend and, and, you know, having, you know, loss in Australia. So, yeah, man, I've been through a lot of challenges, but I'm not anything special. Um, but it's it's about how you react to those challenges that you can then know that you are doing the right thing, know that you are continuing to push your boundaries 
uh, and continuing to grow as a human, not just on the professional side, but as a, as a, as a, as a partner, as a son, as a, as a potential future father, all that type of stuff. And, and really, you know, enjoy the journey because so many people want it to happen tomorrow, right? We're, you know, we're all spinning plates and trying to keep things juggling the balls in the air. But you also got to remember, you've got to enjoy the journey along the way. And, and, and we can always get a little bit frustrated with the lack of their progress that we're doing. Um, and, and people may listen to this and you know, think of quote, quote, success. But I don't believe I've achieved anything out of the ordinary. I, just, I believe I just keep pushing my boundaries. And, and I know that I'll continue to keep pushing my boundaries over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And, and, and I'll be able to look back and say I really enjoyed my life along the way at the same time because it's not about the the numbers or the billions or the whatever you want to call it. It's about that you have a good quality of life and that you, um, that you're something that you're proud of. Right. And, and I think that is the most important thing that people, whatever you pursue in life, whether it be real estate investing or creating a business or creating financial freedom, it's about in the, the, the journey along the way to get there because, um, because we all, we always want it super quick, but sometimes it takes longer than, than, than we think. And, and I think that's the, that's the issue we all struggle with internally and mentally when, as we starting to pursue and, and go up and be, try to try something new, maybe a path less, less traveled than, than the corporate world. Yeah. And that's kind of why I wanted to even touch on that and bring that up because you look at the beginning point where you're like, you're coming in with kind of being scrappy and trying to figure out your way into this industry. And you're like, Oh, starting off with a single family home and, and kind of going from there and then fast forward and you see this substantial growth. And then some people might, look at that and hear that and be like, oh, I can't do that. That's unattainable. I can't achieve that. That's 250 million in assets. That's crazy. But I mean, the benefit of this business is it's so scalable and you start building systems and, and you get better deal flow and more investors and all those different aspects that kind of compound on each other. But it's literally just kind of taking one step at a time, building one processes and systems and all these different things that kind of compound and stack on each other that keep on, you know, catapulting you to growth in, in personally, professionally, and in your business. And then you can look back and reflect and be like, oh, wow, like, look at what I accomplished. And I'm sure you probably have an element of that where you're like, oh, wow, how did I do this? Right? Like you look back and over the years that you kind of built this, it, did you have that kind of feeling ever where it's like, did I actually acquire all these? <laughs> yeah, well, so two things, I think, uh, you know, don't let's not skip over the fact that what people have, so the first thing I kind of mentioned before is the mindset on the front end, right? Like people tend to give up on things regardless of what it is. You know, take, take losing weight, for example, right? It, it take, if, if you, if you struggle with it, you know, and it's a thing that it's very common in the everyday life. Um, if you think you're going to lose the 10 pounds or 20 pounds, whatever it is in, in 30 days and it doesn't happen, do you think you're going to continue doing it? Um, no, you're not because you haven't got the right mindset on the front end. If you think it's going to take years or it becomes part of your DNA and part of your lifestyle, then it doesn't matter how long it takes. And it's the same with, with, with building wealth and building a business and, and building financial freedom. If you set out to go that I, it's going to maybe take me 5, 10, 15 years to achieve, then the likelihood that you aren't going to quit along that way when it gets hard is a lot less likely compared to someone who's like, I'm going to do this in 12 months. And there's some freaks out there who can do it in 12 months. But the average person, it took me over eight years by the time I picked up Rich Dad Poor Dad where that seed was planted before I was able to leave my corporate job. So, and in that eight years, there's a lot of self-doubt. There's a lot of dark times and you've got to remember that you're, you've got to keep pushing forward uh, and, 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 and thus keep knowing that you're, um, you're making the right decisions and making, taking the right steps. And at times you can think it's only baby steps, but again, you're continuing to make a bet on yourself. Uh, and that's the other thing is like, 
you've made a decision, you know, going down this path of entrepreneurship or financial freedom, that you're going to take control of your life that other people may judge you for it, right? There's, there's always this, this stigma of, oh, well, are you really doing the right thing? Is it really making any, any sense? And I had all those, you know, same questions <laughs> over the top of my head when I, when I started doing it, but knowing that it's the right thing and, and, and becoming part of your DNA as you grow as an entrepreneur, it's really important. It goes back to the analogy of the fitness analogy, you know, like I, I like to maintain fitness and it's not a chore. It's a part of my lifestyle. And that's the same with business and growing, becoming an entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur becomes part of your lifestyle and becomes part of your DNA. So that's something that people tend to overlook when they hear the story, when they hear the growth over eight years, but it's, it's, it truly comes down to one, taking a bet on yourself and two, knowing that you've set up the right mindset on the front end and three, knowing that it's going to become part of your DNA as you grow uh, as a professional, as a human, uh, as, business, as a business leader and, and entrepreneur. Totally. Yeah. So I'm going to shift it a little bit here, but what are you currently working on now? Like where are you kind of focusing your efforts in terms of still making acquisitions? Like where are you actually looking as your target market to make new acquisitions and build your portfolio? Yeah, good question. Um, so we are we, the, the two thousand units we have today are is in central are in central Texas in in Austin and San Antonio. We are more focused on the Austin market right now, just because it is transitioning or has transitioned in sort of into a, what's called a tier one market. And you know, coming from Australia and and very similar you know metrics to we're talking about just before we pressed uh, record here on the show about you know the Vancouver market and the BC market and the supply and demand. Um, of, 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 of people wanting to live in certain cities around the world. And Austin's really been the poster child of this transitioning out of a tier two market into a sort of a, a primary market where there's a lot of demand, but not a lot of, uh, not a lot of supply. And, and when you can go in there and create supply um, through either acquiring existing assets or creating new assets um, in an affordable way, then that's what our you know investment thesis is. And, and that's really where we think over the long, over you know, 10, 20, 10, 20 years in investing, we'll do just fine. Um, and I do think leading up to this sort of, you know, COVID situation that we had a very frothiness in the market with, um, with how compressed cap rates have, have, have gotten. And I know in Canada and in Australia, how much cap rates are compressing are, are, are across major metropolitans and MSAs. Um, but I think that's a function of, of obviously cheap debt, but it's also a function of the way in which we're living as humans, uh, the way in which we're moving away from and I think COVID will have some impact, but prior to COVID, we were sort of wanting to have the lifestyle and close to work and, 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 and the entertainment. And that was driving thus, uh, you know, more of a multifamily apartment style living, uh, coupled with the way the, the, the lack of wage growth, um, coupled with the fact that, you know, investing in hard assets uh, is a great um, you know, hedge against inflation. So all these things uh, in my, in my mindset make, investing in tier one markets or transitioning markets into tier one like Austin uh, really, really enticing for the long term um, because real estate is not a get rich quick scheme. It's a get rich slow and, and, and people tend to forget that. And I know in the last, in the last cycle, you know, 2008 to, to sort of pre COVID people were making a ton of money hand over fist, you know, two, three times X in, in very short period of times in the commercial, particularly multifamily. But you've got to remember, look back in history that, you know, particularly where I come from in Australia, if you double your money in 10 years, you're doing just fine. Uh, and, and I think we sort of, as a, as a the US here in the multifamily industry, sort of lost sight of that. And there was a lot of frothiness and thus a lot of flight of, of, of money into the market. I think now we're in COVID 
um, multifamily has proven and will continue to prove how um, recession resilient it is, given that, you know, people need shelter, right? People need, you know, the two human needs, um, uh, food and shelter. And so when you compare an asset class like multifamily to retail or hospitality um, or, or commercial or, or office space, multifamily is looking pretty sexy right now and thus will continue to drive in my, at least my thesis will continue to drive competition. Uh, and thus that will continue to drive cap rates down. Um, and you couple that with, with the inflation, the quantitative easing stuff we've just had you know, across the globe um, that will only entice more people to want to invest in these types of hard assets. So with that being said, that is my investment thesis. And that's why I like to be, opportunistic in a, in a market like Austin, Texas. And we may pivot from multifamily a little bit into some other spaces like ground up construction or, or looking at some value add stuff like hotel conversions into low, low cost multifamily uh, or look at some warehouse space. But we as, a, as an organization want to be sort of a, a, an inch wide and a mile deep in one market so we can get the best opportunities rather than being scattered over, say, four or five different MSAs. Right. So, and as you kind of highlighted there, like we're starting to see multifamily is just kind of this place where people are wanting to be putting their money, right? As, as a safe haven, right? And a hard asset that's kind of proven over the last little while to be recession resistant. Not, nothing is really like completely can't protect against any type of recession because it's going to have widespread effects against on the economy, on everything that happens, but you're going to want to look for a safe haven on where's the best place to put your money or hold assets that are actually going to be able to protect against the downside in a recession, right? So with that being said, we're, we're seeing multifamily strength a bit, right? And there's more people being attracted to that to acquire those types of assets, right? So you're always going to be looking for strong deals. How are you actually continuing to find those good deals in this competitive marketplace? Are, are there any particular strategies on how you're looking to source these, be it off market or with brokers or to find these deals that really make sense for you to keep acquiring? Yeah, so uh, look, as you know, you, you, you're in a fund. Um, these big commercial deals, you, you're not going to get a yellow letter out to the owner and hopefully they sell you know, $30 million to you, right? <laughs> the brokers had the keys of the kingdom. Um, we do, uh, out of the nine deals we own, I think four, four of them have been off market or pre-market. So uh, through brokers, right? And, and I was telling you just before, in the green room before we press play, you know, we ha we're currently on a best and final on a deal that is um, in Austin that we had an opportunity to, to buy off market about 18 months ago, but one of the sellers didn't, one of the owners didn't want to sell at the time and thus want to do a full marketing campaign. And it's going to go for six or $7 million higher than what they originally agreed to sell it to us for. So, you know, we're seeing opportunities and for us, it's also about being opportunistic. So, so one, sticking around the hoop, uh, making sure you know all the brokers in town are really, really important. Uh, back to my point of being an inch wide and a mile deep in one of your, your, your chosen MSAs. And then also understanding the different growth paths within the community and where things are going to be invested. Where's money from the municipality going to be invested? We just bought a, um, a 284 unit in, in South Austin, um, knowing that it, it you know, on, on paper, it was a medium to low cash flow type of deal. Um, but knew, knowing that it has this sort of potential growth that the city was, is going to build uh, a new transportation uh, monorail you know, literally not even a half a block from where this property is. That's going to have a huge impact on the property itself and understanding those types of investments from the municipalities in where you're investing is really important to understand where you can go and extract value because you can extract value from any different market that you're investing in. You just need to understand 
what that value is, whether it's through re-entitlements, whether it's through increasing the density, whether it's through just simple repositioning, whether it's through buying a distressed asset because COVID is now uh, showing that there's going to be some distressed assets in the markets. Wherever you're investing, it's just making sure you are completely across all the different things that are going on in your market. And for us, that means sticking close to the hoop, not being in the in the pockets of the brokers, understanding what when deals are coming or pre-coming to market, uh, and, and just really keeping uh, a good uh, you know, temperature of where the market is headed uh, in the short to, to long-term future. Right. So is there any particular deals that, or maybe one particular deal that you kind of want to highlight or give some high-level details on that that went well, maybe it didn't go well, it's, it's really up to you, but kind of like, where did you acquire it? What was the age, unit count, and what was some of the maybe operational improvements or ways that you look to add some value to it? Can you kind of touch on some high-level details of a deal that you really liked? Yeah. Yeah, so I can probably touch on two things. One, how things are being impacted in COVID, and two, you know, a deal like we picked up a deal in North Austin uh, end of 2018, uh, and that was a deal we picked up at a five and a half cap um, for a 2004 built deal. Uh, so we got you know interest rates at four percent, so it was a not lovely little spread there between uh, cap rates and 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 interest rates. And the reason it was a little bit um, quote unquote hairy is because the deal or the sellers knew and, and in this particular geographic, uh, ge- sorry, geological uh, zone was expansive clays and that had issues with the foundations and really scared a lot of people away. Um, but for me, being a structural engineer, I got really comfortable with it and it just it really came down to a function of money and a function of how do you service this, this shifting ground because no matter where you build in across the globe, the ground's going to shift, right, um, over time. And how what structure you have on top of it is going to depending on how it's going to react to that that shift. Um, and so for me, I got really comfortable with the work that the seller had done, and that, they had sort of discounted a little bit, knowing that the average multifamily buyer may not have that you know that understanding of, of foundational work. Uh, and for us, it's been a bloody incredible little pickup, and and it's been now best performing asset in COVID quarter over quarter. It's actually grown in revenue because of. The way in which yeah, we have an on, you know, we have repositioned the asset because of one of the value adds we do with any asset we buy is, you know, we go in there, we look at the demographic, and we look at the average household income, and then we actively look to change or increase that household income. So to start to advertise to people who have a higher wage um, uh, income uh, to then attract them to want to rent at our property through doing you know, certain type of upgrades. Um, but through also doing, uh, you know, increasing the renovations, putting in new amenities, and thus, you know, when you start intra- attracting, say, a seventy thousand dollar household income compared to, a, say, fifty thousand household income, those people are more tech savvy. So, you know, when we're leasing to people in this COVID time, um, we've had a lot more online applications, you know, sight unseen, uh, and so for us, it's been that's been a really sort of the the pillar of our portfolio. Um, on the other side of the coin, we've had some assets we've picked up, which are more blue collar assets, and and people have struggled in that because that the low socioeconomic markets and submarkets across the globe have been hit the hardest in the pandemic. Um, the sort of the paycheck to paycheck, and and how you've been in your transition of that demographic when COVID hit will really depend on how well you've fared um, throughout the last couple of months. And for us, it's been a bit of an eye opener to, to to wanting to be more in that you know, white collar type of market um, because that, you know, that's where I think the market is going to head uh, with the technolo- technology and, and leasing and, and, and COVID being around for the next little while versus the, 
the blue collar and the low socioeconomic housing type of stuff because that is a lot of people have been impacted by that. So, um, and I can touch on how we've, we've tried to manage that, but they're sort of being the two contrasts that we've seen in the portfolio in and around how right now in the last sort of two quarters, individual deals uh, are reacting and where you are in your value add strategy when you're trying to change that demographic um, on a particular asset. Right. So and even making newer acquisitions in this time where you've really got to be conservative now more than ever, right? And really take a closer look in the fine details when underwriting a particular deal that you might be looking to acquire now. So could you highlight some of the most important things that a general partner should be looking for when underwriting a deal, especially during these times? Oh, I, the first thing is year-on-year year rent growth. I think you want to have zero year-on-year year rent growth. If you get a T12 uh, P&L or a rent roll, um, you know you're want to look at what, where the rents are today, and you're probably not. You're going to have to have a zero growth in the next 12 to 18 months at least. You want to look at where your bad debt collections are at, and and see how many people have moved out due to COVID. Uh, so you want to see what type of losses you have across the asset, the assets, the economic. Uh, occupancy versus the physical occupancy. And that's really the delta between who's actually renting from you and b- warm bodies in the units versus what who's actually paying you uh, and looking at that, that, that discrepancy. Then also you're needing to understand where are you, where's this value add going to come from and who's going to pay you to want to, you know, if you renovate a, a unit, who's going to pay the hundred or 120 bucks a month increase. And at this time we've completely paused all our renovations on our interior units because we know we're giving away concessions still on some assets. Um, we know the market hasn't come back yet, but in 2021, we'll probably reassess it and, and continue to pick that ball back up again. So when you're looking at an existing asset, one, you need to look at, again, the rent, the, where the rent is today, applying a zero rent growth for at least the next 12 to 24 months, looking at where your concessions are at and looking where you, what your bad debt is at uh, to really give you a, a litmus test on, on how the asset's faring today in COVID. Uh, and then you need to adjust your pricing based on that. And, and hopefully the seller has the same expectations. But again, depending on where you are in the submarket, you, the seller may not have to discount the asset at all if it's, if it's been you know, propped up by 30 or 40 offers. So because there's also low inventory to market right now we're seeing uh, and the stuff that is hitting the market that has some decent bones behind it and some decent uh, demographic is really being snapped up very, very quickly. Right. And then typically with a real estate deal, most sponsors are going out and looking to hold the project for at least five, seven, some people go even 10 years or indefinitely, right? So with that being said, there's just so much uncertainty, even looking like months down the road or a year down the road. So we always got to look at the exit, right? Um, where we might be looking to sell the asset and what the economic circumstances might be at that given time. So just given where we are right now and trying to predict that, I mean, if we all had a crystal ball, we'd all probably be the millionaires, right? So could you talk about like, how do you go about figuring out what your exit assumptions might be and what cap rate you might be selling it at? And could you kind of talk about that thought process and the logic that you're kind of putting into, into your exit assumptions? Yeah. So to, to your point, we are, we are extending our hold times to seven and 10 years now um, on the, on the exit. So to sort of ride out this sort of downturn, uh, the two things I like to look at uh, over a, over a project, this goes for any limited partner who's listening to this right now. If you're betting a sponsor, if you're looking at a, at a, at a value add deal um, you want to see what are they assuming over the hold um, in terms of NOI growth and what's that year on year growth going to look like. For example, um, if you are holding for, five years and, and your NOI at the exit is going to be at X and you started at Y and it, that's a 
10% or double-digit year-on-year growth in NOI, I'd be very, very uh, alarmed to understand why that is growing so quickly or so much. Uh, I think you need to be in the more 6 to 8% year-on-year growth in NOI, uh, and I'll be wanting to look at more over a 7 to 10-year hold. Thus, that backs you into a, an exit cap, uh, and typically that exit cap will either have grown by a couple of bases or you know, probably 20 to 40 basis points, depending on where you're at. But for me, I really want to look at the two things is the NOI growth over a period of, um, if it's a 10 year hold, which we just, we're doing one right now, um, you know, between as I said, six to six to 7% year on year growth. Um, if it's a true value add, if it's more of a stabilized deal, you're probably looking at four to 5% year on year growth, um, over, you know, whatever that is 10 years. So that's going to be a 40 to 50% NOI growth. And then you're backing into what your, uh, in place cap rate is today accounting for new taxes and then growing that by between 40 to sorry between 10 to 15 basis points a year on cap rate uh, so so if i'm buying it at a four and a half cap adjusted for taxes today uh, i, I want to be selling that in 10 years time for between 5.25 to five five and a half percent and that's a growth assuming the market gets worse um, but for me also 10 years there's an argument that you know we'll be back to where we are today and, and interest rates are going to remain, remain, maintain low. So for us, it really depends on, on what you can stomach uh, and, and what your investors can stomach in terms of those exit assumptions. Because at the end of the day, that's just a snapshot and anything can happen. Um, you know, No one predicted COVID to happen. We were going to sell some assets this year and that we had to put that off because of COVID. So all of that stuff is combined into what, what you think is feasible in a period of time in the future. And, and, and you hopefully you're not too far out of your, over your skis. And that's where I like to look at that NOI growth over uh, year on year. Uh, and depending on where it's, whether it's a value add, a heavy value add, a moderate value add or a stabilized deal, where should that be from a year on year growth point of view? And then looking at what the exit price per door will be. So if you're buying it at 100K a door today and you're looking to sell it uh, for 150K a door in 10 years time, do you think that is going to be feasible on a replacement cost type of basis? So what does it cost to replace uh, an asset like that today versus what it's going to be like in, in the seven to 10 years time. All those things go into my um, gut checks when I, when I look at uh, assets or when I'm looking at other deals to make sure they know that they're pencil. Yeah. And are you looking to have a different structure in the debt that you're putting on the deals? I mean, it's you being more conservative, having a lower LTV, or are there any other issues that you're looking at in terms of the, the debt side of things? hundred percent. Oh, you, you, yeah, look, trying to do a, uh, two, two mistakes that we made early on in, in our career. And this is going back three or four years ago, five years ago is like, we got fixed rate, um, agency debt at sort of four and a half to 4.6% back. And that was what it was back in the day. Um, and we should have got floater and we didn't have the balls to do floating because we we're new. Uh, if we had floating, we, our interest rates would be a lot lower than what they are today. And we could exit early with, with, you know, not having any prepay. So, uh, understanding, your prepay is really important, understanding your leverage. And, and really for us, we like to overraise from equity uh, our capital expenditure on, on the project. And that does reduce the IRR to an LP investors, but we're in control of that. And we'd, we'd have less leverage uh, on the asset. Thus, the cash flow could be higher um, on, on a particular asset. And so we, we can get comfortable with that in terms of a lower IRR to investors. Um, so, so low leverage, making sure you're getting some sort of floating rate with a, with a ceiling uh, fixed um, so you don't, you can sort of hedge that risk if interest rates do start swinging back the other way um, and, and, and making sure that you're potentially over-raising for your own capital expenditure rather than going to the bank and getting that over-leveraged. I don't think being over-leveraged right now is, 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 uh, is good. So, so yeah. 
Yeah, no, some great insights there. I just want to start to move towards wrapping up this conversation and take it into the final four questions where you give short to the point answers. So first one off here is, what is your favorite real estate or business book? Business book would have to be Key Person of Influence by Dan Priestley, Australian author. Okay, I'll have to check that one out. What is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? That interest rates would change. (laughs) (laughs) What's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate? Morning meditation and working out. Awesome. So what do you like to do for fun when you're not working on your real estate portfolio? Surfing. Awesome. Yeah, and you've probably some awesome surfing out in your area. Like you're just outside of LA, LA or... That's yeah. I guess correct, yep. Oh, Hermosa Beach right now. I'm calling you literally a block from the beach. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, so it probably gives you a little bit of a, a taste of home from exactly. coming from Australia. So you probably exactly. did some surfing growing up and get to keep that in your lifestyle now. 100%, 100%. Yeah, so last thing here is if uh, any of my listeners want to learn more about you, what you got going on, or if they want to get in touch with you, what would be the best way to do that? Yeah, so two ways. Um, you can reach out to me at Reed. Uh, so go to my website, which is reedgoosens.com. That's R-E-E-D-G-O-O-S-S-E-N-S.com. That's where all the books are, the podcasts, the audio books. You can sort of the more educational side. If you're ever coming through LA, you can hit me up at info, I-N-F-O at reedgoosens.com. And just, you know, if you want to meet up for a beer or a coffee. Uh, if you're more interested on the investing side, and you want to learn a little bit more about the investing, you can still go to reedgoosens.com. There's a, there's a link there, say invest with us. Or you can go to wildhorncap. Dot com. So either of those two, uh, two websites um, to check us out and, and see what we do. Awesome. Yeah, it was super informative, all the information you shared today and, and you added a ton of value and I really appreciate you jumping on this call to kind of share with my audience. So thanks again and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Mate, thank you so much. You do an incredible job. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. You too. Take care.